depends on its teachers. We've always had a welfare for learning in this country. The educated citizen has a special obligation to encourage the pursuit of learning, to promote... Testing Testing is brought to you by Epigrammar, an AI-powered gradebook. When I taught classics, grading was tough, so I co-founded Epigrammar to get my best feedback once and repurpose it everywhere. With this podcast, I hope you'll test some of your assumptions about what it means to get an education. How do you know what's good? In 2018, a 4-3 ruling on the Supreme Court of Connecticut overturned an important decision against the state. In 2016, Judge Thomas McCausher of the Hartford Superior Court had ruled, while only the legislature can decide precisely how much money to spend on public schools, the system cannot work unless the state sticks to an honest formula that delivers state aid according to local need. Connecticut's constitution defines its school fund as a perpetual fund for the equal benefit of all the people thereof. And so Judge McCausher found widespread evidence of unequal benefit. But in 2018, was Connecticut's public education system much better than it was before? Not quite. After 12 years of litigation, Connecticut's Supreme Court found that in Connecticut Coalition for Justice and Education Funding versus RHEL, the plaintiffs have convincingly demonstrated that in this state there is a gap in educational achievement between the poorest and neediest students and their more fortunate peers. But in writing for the majority, Judge Rogers also ruled disparities in educational achievement standing alone do not constitute proof that our state constitution's equal protection provisions have been violated. Coincidentally, that same month, an important book, Educational Goods, Values, Evidence, and Decision-Making, was published. So Testing Testing took a trip to the nation's capital to speak with one of its authors, who has also been advising Sabre, Systems Approach for Better Education Results, at the World Bank. Please welcome to the program Dr. Helen Ladd, an economist and professor emerita of economics at Duke University. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. Ladd, to begin our interview, could you briefly explain the title of your book? We introduced this term, educational goods, and it's the knowledge, skills, attitudes, and dispositions that enable someone to flourish and to contribute to the flourishing of others. But what does that mean? Which skills and knowledge are particularly important in this day and age? And it is important to emphasize context. If we'd been writing this book in the 17th century, we wouldn't put much emphasis on cognitive skills. We'd put more emphasis on manual skills so we could go out and people could learn to farm or whatever it was they are going to do. So we had to think hard about the current context, and we came up with the following. Where educational goods involve the knowledge and skills, dispositions and attitudes that are needed for people to succeed in the labor market. So that should be familiar to lots of people. The capacities needed um, so people can participate and benefit from the political process, so political competence. Um, the capacities that lead to personal fulfillment. So maybe having some art and music and exposure early on in the school system to these things that over one's life um, will lead to personal fulfillment. Personal autonomy is a big one for us. That We believe that an important aspect of education is that it helps children make their own judgments, their own personal judgments, taking in information from others and deciding which occupation is best for them, perhaps what religion is best for them, to make judgments about what's true or not true, so personal autonomy. Uh, and then there are just two others. One is 
um, promoting healthy personal relationships. So we're, we're all people who interact with others and, and interacting in a positive way and developing personal relationships. So we won't be lonely when we grow up. <laughs> There's a lot of talk about loneliness in the public literature in the UK right now. Um, and then the last one I want to highlight, and that's the capacity to treat others with dignity. And so to treat others as moral equals. And we come to back to that a lot as we talk about policy options. That sounds somewhat like the human capital argument from our correspondence with Dr. Kaplan. And I think the values that Dr. Ladd espouses are summed up pretty well in another term that she and her colleagues coin, childhood goods. So notice all of those educational goods are developed when children are young or in schools and stuff, but we're ultimately interested in flourishing as an adult. So all of those capacities allow people to succeed as adults. That contrasts with the other new term that we introduced, which is childhood goods. Um, and childhood goods, we made up that term as well. But uh, childhood goods have to do with the special character of childhood. When children are young, they have lots of joy and wonder and curiosity. Um, a bit of naivete, that's fantastic, and that's unique to childhood. And we think that um, childhood it's worth singling out childhood goods, the opportunity for children to experience joy and wonder and happiness. Some of that's important for um, healthy development and may lead to future flourishing. But even if it doesn't, lead to future flourishing. We think it's important because that's a special time in people's lives. And as we sh discuss in, in subsequent chapters in the book, there are lots of times we may need to make trade-offs between, say, trying to help children eventually become more productive in the labor market, maybe putting a lot more emphasis on the cognitive skills that might be important to that. But that could be at the cost of childhood goods. And we'd like people to discuss and think about those trade-offs, but they need the language to do that. She said language. That's your cue, Mike, for some classics. All right. Did you know that the word economics actually comes from the ancient Greek nouns oikia and nomos, together meaning household law? One of my favorite philosophical texts is Oikonomicus, or The Economist, written by Plato's pal Xenophon, who describes the basics of supply and demand, and also how to run an estate. Who knew that the field of classics had so much to offer the modern world? Actually, a promising trend in the field is toward interdisciplinary scholarship, and similarly, I think that's what makes educational goods so great. Would you be able to go more into the collaborative context or research motivations for this book? Yes, as you know, um, I have three co-authors. One of the other co-authors is like me, uh, uh, someone trained in economics who does a lot of empirical social science research in the field of education. And the other two, Adam Swift and Harry Brighouse, are both uh, philosophers. So we've got two economists, 
you know, empirically oriented people, and two philosophers who think about values. So this is really quite an unusual book and an exciting one for me um, because it takes me out of my comfort zone, which is data and looking at the effects of policies, to try to step back and say, ask the question, what are we trying to do? What is it we value? We want to help people think about how values should drive the decision-making process, and then evidence should inform the policy decisions that are made. Now, I need to talk about the term educational goods. The four of us had to make up that term. Early on in our conversations, somebody, one of the four of us, would say, well, you know, what do, what do we care about? And somebody would say, oh, I'm going to use student achievement as a shorthand for what we're doing. And the rest of us early on said, but wait a sec, I thought the whole point of this was to have a take a broader perspective on the valued, valued outcomes of education. So how are we going to talk about those? So we had to come up with this new term, uh, educational goods. And, and I'd love to dig into that chapter, which you mentioned a little bit more, school finance, because that is such an important issue in education. I used to teach Latin and Attic Greek in Connecticut, and as I was teaching, the state judge McCausher ruled against the state of Connecticut for failing its, its constitution. Yes, exactly. It's right. a mandate to provide a certain level of adequate education, and given the funding structures of municipalities and allocations based on test scores, etc. What was troubling the court case or the fact that the court case was needed? Results across the board. Well, but lots of states have had court cases like that. North Carolina, the state in which I live, mm -hmm. had a case back in 2005 where the focus was on adequacy, not on inequality, but much more on adequacy. And we're still dealing with that issue. I'm now on the governor's commission to deal with the follow-through on that Leandro case to try to promote an adequate education system in North Carolina. Ooh, that reminds me of a song. Well, Quinn, I don't mind you singing, but exercising your own conceptual framework is actually an important part of educational goods part two. So the way we think about it in the book is say, um, how many resources or how much funding to give to the different districts or to make sure the different, different districts have. So how much do you want to differentiate differentiate that funding on a per pupil basis across districts. Your first thought might be, well, if we're searching for equality, if our value is equality, maybe we want the same amount of funding in each district. But that's not right because different districts may face different costs of hiring teachers. Um, and because rural areas may find it more difficult to hire teachers, others, the Alternatives for teachers, um, because you're close, if it's Connecticut, some of them may be close to New York, and they may have lots of high-paying alternatives, so to get good teachers, you have to pay them more. So you need to adjust that for those sorts of costs. Maybe land costs or building costs differ across the area, so you'd want to adjust for those as well. Now... Think about if, you, if you're trying to promote adequacy, what does that mean about differential funding across districts? Again, that would mean you'd want to have different amounts of per-pupil funding because some groups of children are far more expensive to educate than others, largely because 
um, of their disadvantaged home backgrounds, and the fact they don't have access to books or computers at home or travel or whatever. So it may cost more to provide them an equal educational or a, um, a given set of educational goods compared to others. So that's another reason you might want to differentiate funding across across communities. So we use the framework to think about that issue and then a second issue or policy decision is, well, once you've got this state system set up, do you want to allow the local communities to add on to that, to supplement the funding? Well, again, you can go through the same sorts of issues. The more you allow the local governments to, to add on to what the state gives, the more unequal the outcomes are going to be. But maybe that doesn't matter if you've really gotten to an adequate level from the state. So, so then what do we know about that? So we have to bring evidence to bear on that. And then the third policy decision that we discuss in that chapter is, well, once you've decided as a state policymaker how much you're going to give to each local community or local school district, um, how many strings are you going to put on that funding? Are you going to tell the local communities how much, what they have to spend that money on? You at the state policy understood that District A may have a lot of special needs students, so you were giving them more money because they had students who were expensive to educate. But then do you want to force them to spend that money on special needs or what? So we raise all of those issues. and. I've done a lot of reading over the years and a lot of work on school finance. And these, all these issues come up in different ways in different um, states. The most interesting state recently has been California because they went from a school financing system that was made up of all categorical grants. So the legislature was giving money to each district, trying to equalize it in very ways, but it was for very specific purposes. So this, that relates to my third policy option. The state was being very directive on how that money had to be spent. And the district said, but wait a sec, that may not make sense for this district. You're giving us money for X, but we need money for Y, not for X. So in 2013, they've changed the funding formula so that the state gives each district a pot of money, and it's called a weighted student funding formula, so they give more money to districts that have expensive to educate uh, kids. But they're still grappling with how much control the state should have. So all of these issues, I mean, I can name lots of other states where they've come up as well. Well, speaking of North Carolina, I think just because this touches on some of the themes of educational goods, article you published is uh, looking at low-income students and be willing to talk a little bit about that. You're right that a lot of my writing, both at the K through 12 level, also I'm doing a lot of work at the preschool level now too, a Smart Start and More at Four and whatever, um, have, that's been oriented toward making sure uh, children from disadvantaged backgrounds have have access to education. So now let's link that up to the article you just referred to. That article um, is talking about a specific program in the flagship university 
or the flagship campus of the North Carolina system. So it's UNC at Chapel Hill. And um, they introduced this program in, I think it was 2003, it was the first year. And the idea was to, to take smart kids. These were kids who had already been admitted to UNC based on their records. So these are smart kids, but the, the goal was to help them get through the system because there's been a lot of concern about um, people, first-generation college goers or low-income or children from low-income families not having the supports and the background needed to work their way through the whole system. So I love the design of this program. It's called the Carolina Covenant. And the first thing it did was to provide funding. So it's institution-based funding. So you know there are federal grants like Pell Grants, but this is institutional funding so that um, these students would not end up with big loans as they, or any loans as they left the system. So funding's a part of it, but it turns out that what's equally important or perhaps more important, or I can't say which is more important because the other part that's important and they need to work together is a whole lot of supports for those students. So there were some supports for these disadvantaged students that were built in in the early years of the program, but by 2006, there were a lot more supports, peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, um, opportunities for the students to um, have dinners with faculty, or one of them is, what, what was it called? Oh, I can't remember what it is right now, but people would get dressed up and learn how to talk with grown-ups and interact with them and networking things. And then some you know, academic advising, but social advising as well. And once these, these supports were added to the funding, we, we find quite strong positive effects um, on you know, courses completed and progress through school. And so, um, so it's exciting. Um, and it's cost some money for the university to do this, but it just shows that it's not, it's not just the funding, it's the supports that students from families that are not used to the whole college process may need in order to be successful. Well, uh, one discipline-specific question I have for you, and I asked this in a previous podcast, and we had another economist on the show. What do you see domestically as the challenge in, in improving an education system attendant to values like democracy and, and things that we care about as, as driving factors? Let me ask, answer it a little differently. What do I think is the biggest thing that's going to come out of this book that's, that's relevant to that? Um, as you probably know, I've long been a critic of test-based accountability. Um, and what testing does is puts a lot of focus on cognitive skills, which are relevant for educational goods, but, but the testing just tests a very narrow set of those cognitive skills. And then those cognitive skills are only one of the many educational goods, or they contribute to some of the various capacities we talk about. But so what I hope 
this book does is finally get people thinking and talking at all levels. So I'm talking about the federal level, I'm talking about state policymakers, I'm talking about superintendents, I'm talking about teachers within or principals within schools, teachers thinking about how they're going to allocate time, how they're going to spend time with some students versus others. I think it's time for them all to move away from this incredible focus on testing, 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 and let's focus this material on that particular student because then she might get over the bar and be called proficient. That's not what we want to do. We want to um, promote skills and attitudes and dispositions that will enable people to flourish. So that isn't to say we shouldn't be testing at all. I actually believe testing cognitive skills are important, but they're not the only thing important. And our country has gotten so out of whack as a result of No Child Left Behind, which is no longer on the books. That ended in 2015. But even the Every Student Succeeds Act, which succeeded, it still puts a lot more focus on testing than than I'd like to put. The, the role for tests should be to help people or policymakers or decision makers um, within schools and within the school system decide what needs to be done to improve um, the opportunities for all children to flourish. Well, I was hoping I would get you to say something about testing, testing, as we wrap up this, this segment on, on testing, testing. But um, we really appreciate your time, Dr. Ladd. Uh, well, thank you very much. Here's one issue I have with the book, though, and to some extent, the semi-recent litigation in Connecticut. In our last correspondence on the economics of education, we learned that an important telos for many college students is debt and their return on investment. And many employers and colleges also corner the market. So why don't we tackle K-12 reform by addressing the educational values of higher education and beyond? Sure, but by and large, educational goods isn't prescriptive. It's descriptive of the sorts of trade-offs that are made from modeling any system on different premises. If you're listening to this episode and interested in learning more about the fundamental issues facing school finance or K-12 reform, I'd encourage you to check out this book and others, which we can only hope to gloss. That's right, and you'll find all books reviewed by Testing Testing on our reading list at testingtesting.fm slash redalert. And that subdomain is R-E-A-D alert? Yes, and those books are fire, hot red. Well read. Well, on a final note, tune in next time for our discussion with Dr. Sonia Santelisis, CEO of Baltimore Public Schools, to finish our series of correspondences on the economics of education. To learn more about guests on Testing Testing, visit us at testingtesting.fm. There you'll find helpful links to episodes released every other week on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correct the record in some way as well, write our team at writingwriting at testingtesting.fm. That first writing starts with an R. But for now, pencils down. <laughs>